Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Charles Marshall here uh, with uh, my great analyst, Bill Padalo. And we are here on this uh, autumn day, October 10th, 2019. We will be discussing a judicial, floor, a judicial foreclosure case today out of Florida. A bill handled some critical particulars on that and was a fact witness at trial, and his expertise was brought to uh, to the fore and brought to bear, particularly with reference to some written discovery that, per usual, institutional defendants uh, dug in on to try to avoid responding to substantively and another aspect to that case that we see also in non-judicial foreclosure cases in California, the institutional players also uh, sought and got a protective order to essentially blunt the ability of the other side, in this case defendant, to thoroughly prepare for trial. I, I do realize uh, I slipped and said uh, – Institutional defendant, that's because here in California, as listeners know, our foreclosure cases here are overwhelmingly non-judicial, and in those cases, the borrower is the plaintiff. The institutional player is the defendant. Here, of course, in this Florida case that we'll be discussing today, and parenthetically, uh, Neil did a great blog on it uh, as well. And, again, Bill Padilla will be able to provide some really good details on it. So just to reiterate, yes, the institutional player here is, in fact, plaintiff judicially foreclosing. And so they needed to go to trial and actually uh, try to seek a verdict in their favor. And this particular trial was a bench trial, so... That actually, given the circumstances, were to the advantage of the uh, of the homeowner. And I will also do a shout out to one Patrick Guinta. I'm trying to pronounce that correctly. Yeah, he's Genta. the okay, Genta, right? He's the attorney who was handling 
the uh, the defense here, and I'm sure Bill uh, will have some further details on that. Uh, now, before we get into uh, Bill's take, I will also emphasize that homeowners are winning in these cases still. Uh, granted, here in California, that seems to be somewhat thin on the ground. It does still happen. We're very happy to report this judicial foreclosure win out of Florida. Uh, one of the more compelling aspects of this, and this was pointed out in uh, Neil's blog post, again, on this case, there was a dismissal with prejudice ordered. Now, that's I would say that is unusual. It's at least somewhat unusual. And uh, what it means is this particular uh, set of institutional players, in, in essence, because of race judicata rules, remember that's where previous legal cases prevent you from, from uh, either defending or prosecuting a future case, um, applied here race judicata rules are going to prevent even another institutional player who comes into the chain of assignment later. If that were to happen here, and the losers in this case try to dump off what's now a bad debt so that a future institutional player can sue in the future, that future player is going to have a very high burden due to this dismissal with prejudice. What typically happens in these cases, even where the homeowner defendant wins in these judicial foreclosure cases, the dismissal as to the institutional plaintiff is quote-unquote without prejudice, which means that they can bring the suit again, uh, sometimes uh, to do forum shopping, though that's difficult to do in California. There's a rule in place here now that typically, unless you're many years apart, you sue again, it'll go back to the same judge who heard the case before. Regardless, again, this is a great result. And uh, another thing that I'll, of course, uh, tell my listeners is I am broadcasting live from Southern California, and uh, either Neil or I will be back with you next week. And... As always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Wise, and LendingWise.com. And it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're, you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the Donate button at www.livingwise.wordpress.com. Dot com. So, Bill, go ahead and tell our audience uh, about this great case and your involvement with it. Sure, be happy to, and thanks for thanks for having me, Charles. Uh, the plaintiff in the case uh, is kind of uh, one of our old nemesis entities we talk about quite a bit on this show, <laughs> U.S. Bank Trust N.A. as trustee for the LSF9 Master Participation Trust, and I was. Uh, very glad that this had an opportunity to go to trial. Now, 
this isn't or wasn't a very overly complex case right out of the chute because in the beginning they came in trying to reestablish a lost note. So the burden was on them to prove that uh, they possessed the note um, and were entitled to enforce it. Um, and they had to also uh, show uh, or at least convince the court uh, that they did proper uh, due diligence to determine uh, who had the notes before it was lost and how they were entitled to uh, enforce it at this point. So, <clears throat> what's uh, so again? It was a it's a fairly straightforward case, uh, you know, right out of the shoot and I. Before I even get into some of the details, too, I want to remind the listeners that um, the common question that I get asked all the time is how many cases have I personally won, uh, like when I'm testifying as an expert. And I just want to make it very, very clear that my role is, is I don't come in and I don't win the cases. I just simply come in, as Neil pointed out in his blog, that I, I help to underscore the facts and to point those out and explain them to the court and the judge and the trier of facts to help them understand um, the the evidence and what they're looking at, you know, in, in better. Um, the, you know, the kudos goes to the the preparation to Patrick Junta, who did a great job in this case, and uh, and and really <clears throat> did a nice job of, you know, keeping it simple and spelling out uh, the 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 clear deficiencies uh, that they they ultimately couldn't overcome. So the interesting, uh, there's there's kind of two things about about this case. Um, ultimately, the judge came out and she made her decision, and it was the right call. And it was saying that they didn't have standing, they didn't meet their burden, and that uh, that that they held the note and and therefore they lost. And then it was obviously the right call, but there's not going to be a lot of uh, explanation in the opinion, in writing the opinion about any of the other issues. However, the court trial transcript is going to have a lot of good stuff in there that the court was clearly listening to about the entity U.S. Bank Trust uh, N.A. And so I'm going to kind of split this into sort of two parts. Initially in this case for almost for well over a year, uh, U.S. Bank Trust, the plaintiff, was fighting on discovery every inch of the way. They were, they were refusing to produce any relevant documents, such as the trust agreement, uh, any unredacted uh, servicing agreements, all, all of the ancillary documents that I typically, in a case when I come in, um, I instruct the attorney to go after in discovery. So we did that aggressively. They pushed back in this case as they have done in all the other cases around the country that I'm involved in, which I explained to the judge. Um, and and um, in, in seeking these documents, uh, Patrick did a great job of filing a motion to compel. And the court back in February of this year had ordered the plaintiff to produce the document in unredacted form. And the plaintiff, of course, uh, was bordering on contempt by not producing these documents for, for a long period of time. And, and it wasn't really up until very close to trial 
that they came in and under the order to compel, and they produced the unredacted, what's called a um, securitization servicing agreement. Now, that's not the governing instrument. It's just simply a, what it is, a securitization servicing agreement. And in producing that, they fought very hard to get a, a very strict confidentiality agreement uh, under seal, by, uh, given to them by the, by the court, um, because they know, who, especially who I am, and they didn't want this document getting out there into the public and so on and so forth. So prior uh, to trial, just the day before, it was the first time that I reviewed the document personally um, at Patrick's office uh, in preparation for the trial. Now, the next day, in the course of the trial, uh, that particular document, uh, by their own uh, will, was entered into the record. <laughs> so it, whether that was, uh, I, it's hard to believe it was intentional, but it got submitted uh, without objection by their own side um, as, as evidence into the case and so that it's no longer confidential. Now, uh, as the trial progressed, they, they backtracked and a bit and, and at least begged to have the what's called the loan schedule aspect of it uh, redacted, and the court agreed to that, but the rest of it's a, now of public information. So it was, it was great because, <clears throat> first of all, the witness for Caliber uh, who took the stand, um, it was classic bank witness uh, testimony, knew nothing about anything. He couldn't explain anything about that, their own proffered servicing and securitization agreement. He didn't read it. He says that it was too complex for him to understand. He said that um, the document just simply speaks for itself, which is the, sort of the, the cop-out-all-end uh, answer when you, when you just absolutely can't speak uh, with any knowledge of it. Um, he couldn't explain the who the custodian was um, for this LSF-9 trust. He couldn't explain uh, the boarding process. He couldn't explain the lost note procedures for Caliber. Yet he would speak to these uh, processes or whatever, uh, like it was you know hearsay. Oh, this is it. It came in through our boarding process. Well, what do you know about the boarding process? Well, I don't know. I don't work in there. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. So, pretty comical. Um, so, by the time I got to take the stand, uh, and that servicing securitization servicing agreement was put before me, I just—I mean, I had a field day um, sitting there next to the judge and walking through this document and pointing out some very critical things. And then, as I explained to the judge, I said, "Listen, I've been doing these LSF nine cases now. I have them actively pending in jurisdictions around the, the country." And I said, the name plaintiff in this case, the trustee, U.S. Bank N.A., U.S. Bank Trust N.A., I should say, um, I said, nowhere are they a party to their own proffered uh, securitization and servicing agreement, number one. So I was trying to say, you know, as a kind of a secondary thing, a fact that even if they were to somehow prevail in their burden to show that they're entitled to force the note, the plaintiff in the case, it's a standing issue, it, it, it doesn't exist and it's not present and it's not the trustee of the trust. In fact, the unredacted version of the document clearly spells out that U.S. Bank N.A. 
is the indentured trustee, not U.S. Bank Trust N.A. So I then pointed out to to the court that the servicing uh, authority that was granted to Caliber uh, through this document that they proffered, specifically, and I read the paragraph right out of the thing to the court, and I said that the only authority that they derive uh, that was given to the servicer is not given by the name plaintiff. It's by parties who are not present to this action. Uh, So I pointed out that their reliance on a limited power of attorney document from U.S. Bank Trust N.A., um, is is not what the securitization servicing agreement says and allows. So there's a disconnect. And so I kept hammering and hammering and hammering on the, uh, the fact that U.S. Bank N.A. is the actual trustee and the only authority Caliber could have to uh, even be in court enforcing anything it was derived from that entity and they're not present. So she was really listening uh, to this and she was reading along with me as I was pointing it out. So I was kind of having fun with that. Now, one of the things that they produced in the case to try to uh, show their um, their due diligence that they own the note is they in Florida you have to certify – um, that you did due diligence and file an affidavit of compliance and, an, and with their affidavit of lost note, talking about the you know who they contacted, that they did proper due diligence and so on and so forth, and uh, to explain their uh, custodial history, so to speak, of the note. So they produced two affidavits in the case. And the main affidavit of their custodial history, claims that the originator Bank of America transferred the note to NationStar, and then NationStar sold it directly to the trust, U.S. Bank Trust N.A. for the trust. And that was their chain of title. Now, uh, I pointed out, and it was very clear, that there was an assignment in the public record back in 2008 that said that Bank of America, who was the originator on the mortgage, transferred both the mortgage and the note to Freddie Mac. And Freddie Mac had actually at one time filed a foreclosure on the mortgage uh, back in 2013. So they they obviously uh, at that time claimed that they owned it and filed a complaint. Now, Freddie went on to dismiss, uh, but from that point, There was no evidence that the note ever came back out of Freddie Mac to any other party. So the note that they were relying on, or I should say their affidavit and the assignments that they were pushing, uh, said that Freddie Mac assigned the mortgage only to NationStar. And then NationStar, they they claim and testified that they that NationStar then somehow transferred the note to the trust. Well, that's kind of an impossibility there, and uh, and the court could clearly see that. So uh, they 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 had some problems there. But one of the things also with this uh, securitization servicing agreement is that it identified the custodian for these loans in the trust uh, as Wells Fargo. And 
the witness, when asked who's the custodian, he didn't know. So I, I gladly picked up the document and said, Your Honor, I said it says right here in the back of the, this agreement that Wells Fargo is the custodian, and there is a request form for the collateral file that was uh, had Caliber's name on it, but it was unsigned, saying that, uh, or it's a request form to seek out from Wells Fargo copies of the collateral files, such as the notes. So I said I can only uh, take from this document that it's unexecuted, and based on the testimony, uh, Caliber never made any attempts to Wells Fargo as the custodian to uh, obtain the note or find out what happened to the note. So that was uh, kind of an interesting point. Um, I also loved pointing out to the court that there's numerous ancillary documents missing in that servicing agreement. So basically, you know, a trust, as I point out, needs a trust agreement. It needs a pooling and servicing agreement or a governing instrument that shows who the parties are and what their authorities are. It's, uh, it's, and, I, and I said I can't even verify that this trust is real, it even exists, or anything without its governing instrument, and that I'm missing. I said this is like a, having a, a small piece of a jigsaw puzzle, and I'm supposed to, and they're relying on it as though it's, uh, you know, the entire picture. And um, and so I said, listen, uh, I got to get, anyway, I got to get a lot into the record about all the deficiencies and all the missing documents, and, and the court was clearly paying attention on that. Now, when we got the closing arguments, uh, or just before that, it was interesting because their witness had a chance to get on the stand as a, and do rebuttal against my testimony, and they clearly they they deny they chose not to. So they they didn't really have much to say or to uh, to defend against all the things that I pointed out there. Um, but in closing argument, it was interesting because the bank attorney started to pick apart the assignment of mortgage that transferred, again, the mortgage and note from Bank of America to Freddie Mac back in 2008. And he, he argued very heavily that the wording in the assignment meant that the note was never transferred. And what I want to read and point out, because this is a very typical language in, in, in a lot of assignments out there, they'll... they'll bargain the sign transfer and set over unto the assignee and they'll say that the assignee is located at care of the servicer address uh they and and you'll see that i mean and probably you know 90 percent of the assignments that it's the assignee is a care of address they made a very uh or tried to point out to the court that because that care of language in the assignment was there that meant that the servicer the party never transferred the note to the to the assignee transferee so i thought that was that was very um very telling uh, that they're attacking this this assignment by saying that the note was never uh, transferred by possession because of that language. So, uh, if that 
if that logic were applied in in cases and uh, for for borrowers or homeowners out there, uh, if that same logic were applied, I think uh, it would be very clear that um, none of these these notes were ever transferred as these assignments uh, purport them to be. So, um, so anyway, at the uh, the end of the trial, go ahead. Oh no! You go ahead and finish up. Oh no! I I just uh, so I, anyway at the end of the trial, you know, um, we we got we we got the win. It was great. There's um, it's going to be very valuable information, I think, for a lot of these debt buyer type cases. Um, it clearly shows that if if they didn't have a note per se, their the their burden, they could never beat meet their burden uh, to to show. Um, that they actually had the note. And in this case, the interesting part, too, is that the originator was Bank of America. They, they still exist, and Freddie Mac still exists, but somehow after all this time, they couldn't go back and, and find a way to uh, cure these deficiencies, which is you know, somewhat of a surprise. You'd think that would be more of a, a simpler thing to do. But, um, but also one more point is that you know we got the winning uh, ruling, fantastic, but when when you look at the evidence that they put forth, the testimony and the affidavits, clearly um, <laughs> somebody's not telling the truth. And uh, it's funny how there's just you know there's never any repercussions for any of this false information that they're pushing and advancing and arguing before the court. They clearly um, are, are false documents. But but hey, a win's a win, right? <laughs> I mean that's absolutely the main thing. But to your point particularly when you've had written discovery and, of course, any any oral testimony at trial. I mean, those are both subject to and presented in an environment of, uh, of, uh, of being subject to perjury, basically. I mean, you're under oath in a written uh, deposition. You're under oath at trial. You are testifying in both settings under penalty of perjury, and where the facts of what you relate are, shall we say, uh, obviously and in a way that's exposed, clearly contradicted by other evidence in the same case, that does raise uh, the specter and the possibility of perjury, and that is the sort of issue that a judge could introduce into a case even on her own without uh, prompting by one of the parties. Typically, that sort of thing would only go somewhere if it was prompted by one of the parties. Uh, nevertheless, you know, as you indicate, it's, it's, it's a big win to begin with, and to some extent you have to take your gain sometimes and then move on. I will say... Uh, this is a good primer in how trusts work, you know, how how these securitized trusts work. Because, you know, as Neil has pointed out before, I mean, for an actual trust agreement, you have to have a legally existing trust. And you have to have the trust agreement supporting that trust. And what happens with these PSAs is they often cannot be tied to a written trust agreement that shows that, yes, this is not just smoke and mirrors. This is not just 
you know, some kind of a finesse. There is a real supporting trust agreement that was signed, that was documented, in some cases recorded, and there was a confirmation of all that in the written agreement itself. Uh, that never happens here. And so, you know, you can use and could have used in this case. I don't know if it was used. Um, but in those types of cases where the PSA is trying to essentially finesse the existence of a trust that it's not actually specifically referring to, uh, the the other side, our side, can argue a lack of foundation as to the trust agreement. Because without the trust agreement, there is no case that could go forward. And this would be true whether you're talking about a judicial foreclosure case like in Florida or a non-judicial foreclosure case uh, like in California. And, you know, just one other point on that. Um, it, it's really striking here how it's really striking here how the institutional players, you know, screwed up in a big way, and essentially were introducing in, into evidence something that they had sought to have covered. So, in any event, that's all the time we have for today. Appreciate you being on, as always, Bill, and. Uh, I will be back, or Neil will be back next week. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily. At The Living Lines Blog, we provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.